0: The Iowa caucuses are right around the corner. From income inequality to health care, there are lots of issues on voters' minds. But former Iowa legislator Ed Fallon is concerned with one above all, the climate crisis. We could take it slowly, or we could get insane. No one ever got anywhere by playing it safe. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. As hordes of Democratic candidates contend for the nomination, climate change is just one of many issues on voters' minds. But for many, including Ed Fallon, it is the absolute number one priority. That's today's show, coming up next, after I remind you that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Fallon created an organization old Iowa, originally to fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline, and now he's dedicated to hounding candidates throughout the state about the climate crisis. He's logged many a mile following candidates around the campaign trail over the past year, but a few years ago he also marched across the country to raise awareness for climate justice. As the candidates have been doing the same march across Iowa courting votes, Fallon has been hot on their trail, hounding them with questions about their plans to combat climate change. Fallon first made his way to Des Moines as a student at Drake University, and he stuck around Des Moines working in the Iowa House of Representatives from 1993 to 2006. Given his current focus on climate change, I wanted to know how much it weighed on his mind back then. It didn't
1: weigh on my mind as much. Uh, Back then, I was more focused on uh, international security, nuclear weapons, military spending. And then when I became a legislator... As a representative of my constituency, I was focused on a lot of the needs that that they were concerned about. Healthcare, housing, um, uh, prison sentencing laws that were punitive and ineffective, uh, campaign finance reform, uh, water quality, a a lot of local environmental issues. Um, But, you know, and I I was aware of climate change, but it didn't really hit me as to how problematic climate change was until after I got out of state politics. Mm
0: And do you think state politics is a place where climate change is kind of ignored because it is such a multifaceted, global, international issue that it's like, you know, the impacts are seen on a local level, but yeah.
1: I think I think uh, I think a lot of issues are ignored at the state house, not because they they don't need to be addressed, but because there's a lot of big money involved that uh, wants to silence conversations about those issues. Because, hey, face it, if uh, if if climate change if if climate action takes hold. There are some powerful oil companies that are going to lose a lot of money. Um, but, uh, you know, on the, on the flip side, we'll still have a planet. So it's probably a good trade uh, <laughs> from the average person's point of view. But no, I, I, th- I think the legislature definitely has to, do be, has to be doing a lot on climate change. I mean, it's become more and more clear, especially after the, I mean, we had a, we had a 500-year flood in 1993. And then we had another 500-year flood 15 years later. So, at what point do we start realizing that oh, something's going on here? And I think, I think people realize now that something's going on. And one reason, one reason, State Senator Rob Hogue is probably one of the most um, proactive lawmakers in the country on climate change is because he's from a community uh, that saw that devastation mm-hmm. the, that the increased rainfalls from climate change has has uh, has, has caused. So, um, yeah, the legislature could be doing a lot on that front. We could be. Doing more to regulate development in floodplains, we could be doing more to require uh, not just voluntary compliance with soil erosion control measures, but you know, but some some real put some teeth into it. Yeah, uh, we could be doing more to discourage. Um, uh, you know, um, I mean, for example, the the legislature could have done something to prevent the Dakota Access Pipeline from happening, and that's a huge problem from a climate emissions, a carbon emissions point of view. Yeah. So yeah, there's lots the legislature could be doing. Um, But the real impetus for change right now, because we are in such a dire situation, the real impetus for change has to come at the federal level.
0: Yeah. So you talked about a kind of wake-up moment for yourself in your personal life when you were, I believe, traveling in Germany and you felt called to public service. Was there a moment when you felt something click with you and you realized that you needed to do something on climate change um, when you realized it was more than just another issue?
1: Yeah, well, the... um let me elaborate on the first uh, yeah. revelation, if I can call it that. Uh, I had, um, I was really unhappy with where I was living at the time. I was what twenty-one, and I, I developed a stomach problem. And I was traveling as I often did back then, on just a song and a prayer. <laughs> and I landed at a fasting clinic in Germany, and they let me stay. Hmm. And I, I was, I was under the impression, from what I'd studied, that fasting might help me. Well, it did. I was right. Um, after a week of fasting, my stomach problem was cured. But interestingly, during that fast, maybe partly because of the clarity of mind that comes with fasting, I had this revelation that I did not see coming, that I had no capacity to describe or explain, but it made it really clear that I had to commit myself to a life of public service. And then I, it was a joyful moment. And then after the joy subsided, it was a fearful moment because I didn't want to do that. I wanted to farm. I want to play music. I want to travel. And so for the next six years, I ignored the calling and, and went on with... Uh, <laughs> and what I experienced instead was six years of back agony. I couldn't even walk. I could barely sit. Um, I finally started to do what I felt I was called to do. And um, and it and my, interestingly, my back got better. <laughs> Funny how that works. But um, with climate change, it was more of a rational awakening. I was having... Supper with Bill McKibben and some students at Iowa State University. And I was talking about issues I campaigned on. And I mentioned climate change as an issue. And McKibben corrected me and said, no, it's not an issue. It's a crisis. Hmm. And he was right. I had to think about that. And, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's, it's a different animal than anything else we deal with. And we all care about lots of different issues. But this is something, to me, it's, it's like uh, coming home. And you open the back door and you notice that a painting has fallen off the wall and there's glass everywhere. And then you notice that your sink is, your, your the faucet is running. How the heck did that happen? And then you notice that your wastebasket is on fire. Two of those are issues. One of those is a crisis. You better address the crisis first and deal with the broken glass and the dripping faucet later.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, so in 2013, you spearheaded the the Great March for Climate Action. And in 2014 along with 35 other climate activists joined on a 3,100-mile trek from L.A. to D.C. Why did you choose to walk across the country? Obviously, there was a purpose behind it, climate change, and calling attention to it. But why did you and many others decide to walk across the country?
1: Well, walking and marching are part of our DNA. I mean, we we walk to escape the, well, we run maybe to, to escape the volcano that's erupting, you know? Uh, the Huns are coming to burn our village. Let's get out of here. You know, uh, there, there's a food shortage. Let's let's migrate. Um, we're, we're we're wired to walk, mm. uh, physically and uh, and psychologically. Uh, we we do it when there's a crisis, and this crisis is less visible, the climate crisis, but it's every bit as real, and in fact, uh, more significant than a volcano, the Huns, or food shortage. <laughs> you know, it's it's. Um, it's an existential threat, one like we've never had to deal with. And I think that's one reason it's so hard for humanity to wrap its arms around the necessary action that we need to take. But, um, you know, to, to me, walking and marching, and again, I've done both walks and marches. Uh, you know, this was a march across the country. When I wanted to learn about what landowners and farmers were experiencing with the proposed Dakota Access Pipeline, that was a walk. Mm. I took my time. I went only about, you know, well, there was one day when it was really, really cold where I went 18 miles. I regret that. But usually I was walking about 10, 11 miles a day. Mm-hmm. So I had plenty of time to stop and talk with people. Um, but walking and marching are tools that you can use to help create a, a better world, mm-hmm. to, to get a message out. Um, you know, if I, if I were to drive across the country, uh, if there 35 of us were to hop in a car, well, a couple cars <laughs> and drive across the country. The great car ride for climate action, uh-huh. that's not going to arouse a lot of interest. Doesn't have the same ring. No, because it's, it's an easy thing to do. Part of the reason the Great March for Climate Action was valuable is because it was a sacrifice. I mean, right. we, we gave up a lot to do that. We gave up a lot of time. We gave up. Uh, I gave up 24 pounds. <laughs> there were some marchers who lost as much as 40 pounds. Wow. I gave up five pair of shoes. You know, we went through an awful lot to do that, and people respected that. Even when we we landed in coal country, I remember, uh, you know, that was the one place where it was hard to get people to talk with us, but I remember having one conversation with a woman at the coal miners cafe, in fact, where she said, you know, people have known you're coming and they really don't like your message, but they respect what you're doing because they know it's difficult and it's Mm -hmm. a challenge. So walking and marching are tools uh, in the tool chest of social change. And Along with them, there's uh, education. I mean, you've got to have you've got to have educational opportunities. Um, there's workshops. Uh, there's political campaigns. There's lobbying. Uh, there's letter writing. There's civil disobedience. Uh, there's a whole range of options for things that one can do in order to try to move change forward. Yeah, walking and marching or happen to be, you know, that's that's one that I'm, I guess I'm good at. Yeah. <laughs> Even though for years, for 15 years, I couldn't walk. And I couldn't even walk a half mile. Uh-huh. So there's something satisfying, I guess, about knowing that you can, you know, the human body can recover to the point where you can do something uh, that wasn't even conceivable at one point in your life. Yeah. I mean, when I was maybe t- between age 20 and 35, I was a mess. When I feel, I'm 61 now, Ben, and when I feel really crappy, I say, oh man, I feel young again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Um, so. What came of the walk, uh, beyond just the personal significance and the, the symbolism of the act? Are there any tangible results that you could point to?
1: No. And it's, it's, that, that, that is the way social movements work. That should not be discouraging. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the bottom line is you, you don't know. You just take action and you move forward, knowing that what you're doing is right, knowing what you're doing is needed, knowing what you're doing is difficult and important. Uh, I will say I can look back and... Um, and, uh, the, you know, there, I know there were folks in Indiana who were really inspired by an action we did as we walked by the BP refinery mm-hmm. that are still engaged because uh, they were inspired by what we did. Yeah. I know there were people on the march who were still active because they were inspired by what they did. So where it all, how it all plays out, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. You can't, you, you know, and th- that often happens. I mean, look at, uh, look at the whole battle over marriage equality. You know, there were. The people who came in on the tail end and helped push it over the finish line, you know, those those tend to be the ones who get recognition for having, hey, thanks for accomplishing marriage equality. You know, but it was the folks back in in ACT UP and Harvey Milk and the other folks in San Francisco and here in Iowa, people like John Schmacher or Jonathan Wilson, who were talking about equality when it was unsafe to do so, when they had to wear bulletproof vests or took chances with their lives. You know, those folks did everything as much as... They, they did more than more than people who came in later right. to set it up. So, you know, who will eventually get credit for uh, climate ending climate change, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, maybe it'll be Al Gore, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> I know that there are lots and lots of people who have made every bit as much of a difference as anyone else. And... Uh, and that's what—that's one thing that's very empowering about this. Every person who cares about this should be doing everything they can, and knowing that whatever they're doing is really important and is as as much a factor in contributing to potential success as what anyone else is doing.
0: Yeah. Um, so climate change is a crisis. That is your message. Uh, and with any crisis, and with a problem this large, it's easy to slip into feelings of anxiety depression despair when confronted with the the grand problem how do you encourage panic as an appropriate response while not falling into despair
1: well I think the the answer is uh, that you avoid despair by embracing action mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there, there's nothing um, more empowering than, than 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 taking action I mean you if you if you just if you're depressed about something, and again there are things that, that are depressing, and we should be disturbed about them, but the absolute wrong thing to do is to sit home and worry about them. Mm. Uh, especially if you're alone, you need to be with people. You need to be engaged. Uh, it's it's just uh, I, I can I can attest to that from experience, and I think most people have probably had that experience. Uh, if if you if you sit around and worry and just feel bad about stuff. It's not going to get any better. Yeah. You're not going to feel any better.
0: No. So you now have an organization um, that you formed since you left the legislature, Bold Iowa, um, which was formed in 2016. Yes. To fight climate change and other related issues, building urban-rural coalitions, and you're also doing something called bird-dogging. Right. Um, So how are you getting re-engaged with Politics via bird-dogging in your Bold Iowa.
1: Yeah, Bold Iowa came about as a response to the Dakota Access Pipeline. And uh, and we realized that what was needed was a strong coalition. And you had farmers and landowners upset about it because of the abuse of eminent domain to take their land. They were concerned about their tiles being destroyed, their mm-hmm. topsoil being mixed in with the subsoil, with uh, concerns about... Um, well, if the pipeline were to break, what would it do to the, the water, uh, the Des Moines River, and some of the other rivers that the uh, pipeline crosses? Lots of concerns there. And then concerns uh, uh, that were raised by Native Americans uh, who had, you know, historically I mean, historically some of this uh, pipeline is going through lands that were very important to our Meskwaki community and a lot of the other Native communities that have lived here. Uh, there, are, there, there are there are actually 26 native communities that have that have at one time or another called Iowa home, and obviously then you know there are a lot of environmentalists who are concerned not just about water quality but about climate change. Uh, so the 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 bold Iowa was a way to bring people together um, to coalesce around this this fight. And again, there were a lot of other organizations that did some really good work um, to to try to stop this. And we didn't stop it. We slowed it down by over a year. Uh, and we built alliances that are still active. And that's what's really important. You know, you, you, you move on from one fight and you find that there's another one waiting for you right around the corner. And that, you know, that in itself, I suppose, can get depressing. But uh, it's the struggle is, is the nature of, uh, of our existence. And mm-hmm. um, we need to pace ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, you, can, you can't go all out at 100 miles an hour constantly.
0: So presidential elections coming up in 2020. Mm. And um, here in Iowa, the caucuses are coming up quickly. So how can Iowans influence the prioritization of climate change as an issue at the top of these candidates' minds? Yeah.
1: Well, the again, candidates uh, are running based on what they care about personally, uh, what their previous experience has taught them. And also, what the polls say, voters want to hear, and you know that's that's the least intelligent reason to uh, to run for office. I mean, there are some people who are so vacuous they have no back they have, they have no background at all. They just know they want power, and so they they go to a poll and then they run on that poll. And you know, honestly, I think we have a pretty good field of candidates that aren't doing that. I think mm-hmm. they all have some passion, some history, um, but. They, they, they need to recognize that climate change is an existential threat. It's different than all the things they've worked on, unless, to, unless they've worked on climate change. You know? But they, 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 need, they need to embrace this as the existential threat it is. They need to talk about it because if they start talking about it, the media will start reporting it. And if the media starts reporting it, people will start paying more attention to it. And as people are paying more attention to it, it will rise higher in the polls. And then when politicians go to consult the polls to find out what they should talk about, It'll be climate change.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a circle for sure. Um, so you're not a scientist, um, but you don't need to be to understand the science and act, I think, is kind of your right. part of your message. Um, I recently talked with someone for the podcast who, who is a climate scientist, but he's also working on actions and solutions. And he encouraged me and all of us to get angry about climate change and to do something. Do you see your job as kind of lighting a fire under other people?
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess you could encourage people to get angry. I would, I would encourage them to be uh, concerned, fearful maybe even, uh, maybe panic a little bit. Uh, and, you know, whatever it takes right now uh, to inspire you to get involved and to take action, you know, let that happen because... We really are, we are, we are at, a, at, a, at a critical juncture here. You can't, you, there's, there's no scenario where we can see the current situation continuing without an absolute catastrophe that's beyond imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the last species to really face the kind of crisis we're facing right now, were the dinosaurs. And we know what happened to them. Um, and really it's, it's not, I, I don't think I'm overstating that. Mm-hmm. If you, again, if you look at the scientific evidence and the scientific consensus, you know, we we we've got a, you know, we should be. We should be dropping everything and doing everything we can to stop this.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and uh, and again, more and more people are getting that, and those of us who get that need to be repeating that as often as possible, as loudly as possible. And again, for those of us in Iowa, we have a an amazing opportunity, and I would say not just an opportunity, but an obligation, because. Mm-hmm. There are folks all over the country who wish they had the access to candidates that we have. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was talking to the governor of Colorado the other day. And when I reported on the conversation, Kathy and I did an interview with him. And we shared that with people in Colorado. And some of them were jealous. I mean, we don't get to talk to our governor (laughs) like that. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're sitting next to Marianne Williamson and talking to her. I mean, she's got a huge fan club all around the country. I'm sure people would love to have a chance to talk with her. Well, we have that chance. Yeah. We should do that. You know. So I think uh, no matter where you are, there's an opportunity. And there's an action or a series of actions or a set of actions you can be taking to make a difference. In Iowa, I really think that we should put all of our eggs in this basket because it's a, it's, it's a huge opportunity. There are, there are national and even international media interested in what's going on here right now. It will not be possible to avoid presidential candidates. <laughs> there are so many of them; they're everywhere. Uh, and and again, it's it's a huge a, a huge opportunity to to influence the debate. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example from way back in 1987. There was a, there was about 12 of us with three different organizations working on trying to get the candidates to oppose the Trident missile. Mm and we were asking questions of candidates in Des Moines and dubuque and a few other places and here's bruce Babbitt. he's the uh, he was the governor of a uh, former governor of arizona and he's quoted in the new york times about his experience in iowa and he said he said i'm surprised at just how knowledgeable iowans are about foreign policy i get asked about the trident missile everywhere i go there were 12 of us <laughs> and that's the kind of influence we had you know he he Twelve of us got him thinking about the trident, and right. got him quoted referencing it in the in the New York Times. So, you know, we we could change the debate on climate change. Yeah, I, Iowans could change the debate on climate. Let me rephrase it: Iowans, New Hampshireites, and South Carolinians could change <laughs> the debate on climate change because we get to go first. Right, which is great and also a huge burden. But let's take that burden and make an opportunity out of it.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Thank you, Ed, for. Uh coming on and talking on the podcast and keep walking all right right. thanks ben ed fallon is a former iowa legislator host of the radio show and podcast the fallon forum and the founder of bold iowa you can find links to his organization and interviews he's done with candidates as well as his memoir of the great climate march marcher walker pilgrim on our website and that'll do it for this week's episode On the next episode, you'll find out what the next episode is about. And so will I. so mysterious. Until then, I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski and Poddington Bear. If you want to contact the show, email me at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians.